0: And um, once I end, I would say, this is the word of the Lord. And then you would respond by saying, thanks be to God. So we'll be looking at John 9, 1 to 12. So that's John 9, 1 to 12. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's his day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on, his, on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked. I don't know, he said. And this is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. Um, nice seeing everyone. So we're continuing in our in our in our study of the book of John and we're trying to find Jesus here. Apologies if you're if you're joining us for the first time, let me just say, apart from welcome, uh, maybe you're joining us for the second time, welcome. But what we've been doing is we've been doing this series called the Believe and Live series. And it's really taken from the book of John. We're trying to we're trying to not overfamiliarize ourselves with the person of Jesus Christ. We're trying to say yes we know him, but we can know him even more. And there's a reason why the scriptures are given to us for us to continually uh, study. Because yes, you meet him there, but we can meet him afresh. And sometimes, the things that we think we know, it's always good to actually go back and look at them. So Jesus Christ is revealed to us in the pages of the scripture. And he's in particular, in a special way, revealed to us through the people that walked with him. Now, John, the apostle, writes, an account, out of four accounts, the last account of those who worked with him. If we truly want to understand who Jesus is, if we want to be a church, that makes sense, it's best for us to read and understand from those who actually knew him. But even more important, our reading and knowing of Jesus Christ says a lot about ourselves. And so what we're trying to do is to go through the whole book of John, not every single part, but at least a significant amount of it. We do have about 18 sermons on this. And this, I think, be, is the seventh sermon. So we want to continue with that study. I'm glad to have you here. If you live long enough, you will suffer. Unfortunately, that's the reality that we find in this world. It's an aching world. A world where suffering is a reality that everyone here above the age of five is all too familiar with. We've experienced it in our lives. We've seen it in the lives of others. In fact, the thing about suffering is that you are either coming out of it, or some of us are presently going through it, or I have news for you. You're probably entering into it. Suffering is something that even though we can't say, for instance, that you look at some people and you say, well, I understand their suffering. In fact, their suffering is even justifiable. There are many other times when, for instance, take this thing that we say: why do good? Why do bad things happen to good people? That, quite frankly, we don't understand suffering. Now, again, I say it's a huge reality because it's one of the questions that every particular, any major religious system or even the irreligious systems, have to answer. And when I mean answer, we talk about the origin, its purpose, its meaning, its end. And therefore, how do we respond to it? Now, some systems, religious systems, will say, we shouldn't question it at all. It's just the will of God. Deal with it. Some would say, it's actually, as a result, is an illusion. Whether the religious way of thinking about it, the Eastern religions, it's an illusion. That we eventually have to break out of because the real world is not the physical, the real world is the non material. And so, what we think we are feeling isn't actually true. It's an illusion, and the end of this is for us to break out of that illusion. Some would say it's just, you know, since we're an accidental, it's a, we're a collocation of molecules, and, um, you know, the world really doesn't have any meaning. Suffering is something that we think is there but isn't really there. It's all chemicals and molecules and things. Now, the problem with that is that we still end up questioning it anyway. And it's hard to believe that it's an illusion, especially when you are in the throes of suffering. And perhaps the one question that encompasses all that we feel about question is this one, why? Why? Why me, O oh Lord? Or why them? Or why not them? And the answer to that, I say it encompasses all because really the why is why this suffering? Where did suffering come from? Why? Why is it happening to this person? How do I do? What do I understand from this? And does it even have an end? How you answer that question affects how you react to people who are suffering or your own personal suffering. I lost my 36-year-old cousin just at the end of last year. And I mean, it was a tragic case. There's no way to go about it. He just got married last year. Wife is expectant. And it was at a point when he was finally trying to get his life back together. His life hadn't panned out in the way anybody would have wished. And at this point, he was become more sober and everything. And all of a sudden, a disease came, diagnosed. Within two weeks, he was gone. And I read on a Facebook comment, um, one of the, someone that was trying to console the younger brother, and the person wrote these exact words. Be strong, it is well. Now, your answer to the question of why suffering will determine whether or not you think that's an appropriate response. So in this story that we encounter, Jesus now, remember we said from uh, one, John 1 to 4, is Jesus' ministry about to start, and it's coincided with the coming down of John the Baptist's ministry. By 5 to 10, we are now encounter uh, Jesus is encountering heightened opposition from the Jewish establishment and Jewish people. And so we are in that particular context. Now here, he has been challenged a few times, and he is also here, as per, they say he doesn't he is irreverent towards the holy days, particularly the Sabbath, and exactly the things that he does on the Sabbath. And so here he's going to encounter this blind man, and obviously, yes, he does heal on the Sabbath, and that causes a lot of questions that you can, uh, if you want to read, um, uh, you find in the, in, 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 the, in the chapter, later in this chapter, in verse 9. But I really want to focus my time on the first four or five verses here on this issue of suffering because he encounters a blind man and the whole issue of where suffering comes from and all those different things and how we react to suffering is really discussed here. And we as Christians eventually have to know how to deal with it and want to hear from our Lord. So I want us to know, to, to go through this in three points. And one will be the causes of suffering, the reasons for suffering, and the defeat of suffering. The causes of suffering, the reasons for suffering, the defeat of suffering. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I've been, my wife knows I've been agonizing on how long I can actually spend here. I would ask you just in case, I'll try my best to finish in normal time, but just in case, indulge me if this sermon takes a bit longer than we normally it normally would take, because it's rather complex. Okay. So let's start. We start with the causes of suffering. Now in verses 1 to 2. Jesus is coming on the road, and then he saw a blind man who had been blind from what? From birth. And then his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, notice, he is blind from birth. In other words, they cannot trace any tragedy that has happened to him that actually caused the blindness. Therefore, it's assumed, if we cannot trace, maybe someone poked him in the eye or he had an accident, then the cause for this must be something unobservable, not something that we can see with the human eye. This is the assumption. The second assumption is, notice they said, that he was blind, that he was blind, right? Rabbi, who seen this man or his parents that he was blind? So they assume there's a cause for his blindness. There is a cause for his blindness. Now, these people don't believe, they don't live in an amoral world. What I mean by an amoral world is a world where they don't believe there's right or wrong, ultimate right or wrong. They believe that there's right or wrong. And that if you're on the wrong side of how we measure right and wrong, you have sinned, right? To be on the wrong side of this objectable reality of right and wrong, you have sinned. And then they go further. They map that sin... To this man's disease. So these people are not assuming that they're not assuming that sin is not in the picture. For them, sin is in the picture. The question is who sinned? Himself or his parents? Now, that himself or his parents introduces us to two tracks that we as human beings, most times us Christians, will largely assume is the cause for suffering in the world. The first track is the personal. The second track is others. The personal and the others. The personal leads to guilt. Others leads to anger. What do I mean? So your business has just gone belly up, right? Your business has failed. It's either you made bad decisions, the personal, or it was a government policy, others. If it is you, then you now start feeling bad and you feel guilty. I crashed this business, I should have done these things. If it's the government, we need to vote them out or rally against them. Either personal guilt or anger. Or again, you're obese. Well, it's either you're in or it's those that manufacturing companies that keep putting too much sugar and they don't tell us how much calories is there. Or even worse, I was recently, recently listening to someone, and he said this, and I think it's true. Africa is such a, it's, it's, it's a uh, when you think of uh, Africa, it's, it's mind-boggling, right? The most naturally endowed resource continent is also the poorest. The most spiritually fervent continent is also the most corrupt. Why? Well, it's either our own, the corruption of Africans, or is the legacy of colonialism. So it's either we shout on ourselves, you Africans, this is the problem with Africa, or it is that you terrible white people. And you still want to come and collect our money again. The personal or the others. I know sometimes this leads to, the combination of both of them is quite devastating. So your marriage has failed. It's not an either or here. Some people will say this. It was my bad it deci- was your bad decision making for choosing that husband or for tro- choosing that wife. And there's also an ancestral curse that's been following you. And so at that point you are, how did I take this decision? And I took this decision because somebody has been, you know, my grandfather had made a particular covenant. Now imagine you are that kind of person. Is there any way to go? So it's either his sin, his parents sin, and in some cases, some would even say both of them. What's Jesus' response? Look at verse 3a. Neither this man nor his parents sin. Jesus is saying, the two tracks that you have given to me actually don't work here. Why? Because... The issue of mapping sin to suffering is not as simplistic as you think. You see, Christians, like I am sure, the well-meaning people that actually commented on my cousin's Facebook page, very well-meaning, very well-intentioned, but we often give very trite, pat, terrible answers to people who are suffering. Jesus wants us not to do so. Is it because the Bible the Bible gives us a very complex, nuanced relationship between suffering and sin? Way too complex for us to basically say, Francis, you know we're going through this. Do you remember that time that you borrowed money from me and you didn't pay back? Payback's a blank, isn't it? Those that know what the blank is, you have very corrupt minds. <laughs> but this is what we do often. We are so uncomfortable with the issue of suffering that we immediately have to find an answer to it so that we can respond in an appropriate way. How often do we go for somebody has just lost you know, their father or their, their, their son or their husband, and we get into the place? And then what do we do? We do the thing that we're not meant to do, which is open our mouth. (laughs) Because we go in there and it feels so uncomfortable and then you feel the need to what? Say something. And for us to say something, it's because we've already thought of this simplistic mapping between this and this. I think the reason for this is this, and therefore I respond until you're on the receiving end of it. So I want to trace about five or six different things that the Bible will say about this. I wouldn't spend too much time in the text. I'll come back. But the, in, the, in the course of this sermon, I want to trace about five, six different things that the Bible says about this. I'm building on the work of a theologian called Don Carlson, but I think he's spot on on this. But the first thing I must say in this point is this. The Bible introduces us to a story. The Bible... Essentially, it tells us a story. And in the beginning of the story, we have a creator God who creates the heavens and the earth, right? This God exists between the, before the heavens and the earth, and he created the heavens and the earth. And when he did all of that, the Bible says that everything was good. In fact, it was very good. By the time he got to the apex of his creation, which is man, he said it was very good. By that, he means that everything was functioning in the way he had designed it in his mind. Guess what wasn't there? Suffering. Now, this God was saying that if this world is meant to function in the way it's meant to function, you cannot just run away from the fact that there is a distinction now. Remember, there was a creator who existed before the creation. And he says, for us to maintain that right distinction between the creature and the creator... I'm going to put in a law. And the law was essentially, he created a garden, he put trees there, and he said, eat of all the trees, don't eat of this tree. It wasn't so much the issue of the fruit on the tree or the tree itself. The issue was, will you obey me as your creator and you, creature? The moment you decide you don't want to do that, you are trying to act as the creator, not the creature. And he said, the day that you actually violate that is going to have huge ramifications. And we know the story. By the time we get to Genesis 3, mankind actually violated that. They wanted to be like God. And when they did that, we are introduced to this cosmic event, cosmic tragic event that screwed everything up. We call it the fall. And since the fall, basically, the world has functioned in a sort of organized chaos. Chaos ensued. The world now became cursed. God cursed the world such that we should be surprised that things actually function in the way they function. The four ensures that you cannot totally just say, well, this is going to happen, this cause, and therefore this effect. Because of the fall, you have things like the psalmist himself is saying, I don't understand this. God rewards those who are good. But actually, that man there is, an, is a wicked, evil man, and he's prospering. His kids don't die. His own cattle actually doesn't get sick. The guy has thousands of cattle. Thousands. None of them actually get sick. I have three. The first one was jaundiced. The second one was malnourished. Not because of me. It was that stupid servant that I had. And now the last one, my wife is actually trying to get it from me in our divorce settlement. <laughs> and I haven't done that much wrong. Look at that man there. And then we come in and want to explain. The Bible says, no, this is what happens. The fall has turned everything upside down. And it's saying, in, if you want to put a summative statement to this, It's basically saying that sin, at this level, sin is the cause of all suffering in general, but not the cause of suffering always in particular. Sin is the cause of all suffering in general, but not always in particular. You see, suffering in many ways tells us that something is fundamentally wrong with the world precisely because of its randomness. Why this person again? It's because at a cosmic level, everything has been screwed up. Now, that brings me to my second point, And in the second point, basically, I want to trace out three other things. If this is the way, if this is the way the world that we've been given, if you accept this premise that this world didn't come into being on its own, but that this world came in because of a good creator God who created everything, and now we have rebellious creatures living in that world, and so things actually don't work exactly in the way they are meant to go. If you accept that premise, the next question is, well, is there any way we can actually make some kind of sense of suffering in this world? Is there any way, is there anything, can this creator God take this suffering and still say something in it? And how does it help us deal with the suffering? In other words, is it, is there any meaning in it or is it meaningless? Could suffering be speaking to us in myriad of ways. Well, here are three of them. Now, if you notice, when Jesus was healing this man, he told him in verse uh, 7, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which word means sent. Now, there's another reference to Siloam in Jesus' ministry, but it's in the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, in chapter 13, Jesus is encountered with some people, and some people, uh, they come to meet him with a question. something had happened. A terrible man, Pontius Pilate, whose name we mentioned today in the confession. He seems to always crop up somehow, I don't know. But Pontius Pilate had actually slaughtered a couple of people, and he just, it was very, very despicable, it was very, very wicked. Not only did he slaughter them, then he desecrated their sacrifices. He mixed the blood of the sacrifice of, 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 of the animals with their own blood. I mean, it was just a horrible thing. And they asked Jesus a question. The people who suffered, were they more wicked than Some other people. Now, but that's not the one I went to talk to. Jesus answered in a particular way. But then Jesus added something and said something that we will call today insurance. Anybody in insurance here? Please don't raise up your hand. I don't like people in insurance. Okay, no, I'm joking. What the, you know, people in insurance call an act of God, right? A building collapsed. A tower collapsed in Siloam. And Jesus asked them the question in Luke 13 verse 4 to 5, he says, I suppose, suppose. Or those 18 who died, 18 people died, when the tar in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Here's what a way of thinking normally would say. I know one man. He was the husband of one wife. He was married to his wife for 60 years. He had four children, two girls, two boys. He actually ran a good business. He gave to the community a lot. He did very well. This man died at 87. And when he died, he died in his sleep. In fact, when he died in his sleep, he looked, when we saw him, he looked like an angel. Very, very peaceful. No disease. Nothing happened. The legacy was there. In fact, when we did his burial, it was a celebration of life. That is the way every Christian is going to die, or is meant to die. That is the peaceful way, or the wonderful way, the way that says that you have actually done that. what is right. That is the way to die. So we say, now, he still had to die. And of course, you know, we're Christians, so he, we can't say he's without sin. Only Jesus was without sin. But actually, I can understand that this man's sin wasn't as bad, and therefore he died peacefully. But those guys who the tower fell on, upon... Those 18 people, the man, remember, is a sinner, but those 18 people to have died the kind of death that they died, that kind of tragic death, no. Those people must have been worse sinners than that man, and that's the question Jesus Christ asked them. Do you think that is the case? Now, the rhetorical question, which he's saying, challenging them, that's what you people think by asking me the very first question about Pilate. What is Jesus' answer? Jesus' answer is basically the first point I want to to say about how we reason with suffering, and which is you need to take a longer eternal view of suffering, a longer eternal view of suffering. Here is Jesus' response. I tell you, no. Now, is Jesus saying that there there is no reward for doing good in this world? No, he's not saying that. But he's saying that that isn't always the case. So I tell you, no. And then he doesn't get into their question. He says something else. He says, but unless you pe- repent, you too will all perish. What's Jesus saying? He's not talking about perishing in terms of the physical perishing. All of us do, are going to perish in that regard. He's talking about eternal condemnation. In other words, Jesus takes the occasion of Temporal human suffering to say this is a window and a picture of what will happen beyond this world if you continue in the life that you are living. In other words, one of the things that suffering tells us in this world, or one of the things that God uses suffering as, this is maybe uncomfortable for some of us, is a warning. Every time we see suffering, we are we are faced, in some sense, we have a picture of what happens beyond this world if we die without God. So I say, well, that sounds harsh. Well, you wouldn't want to know the truth? Like my wife said, oh, uh, wasn't my wife or damn as well, coming here today was like saying, if, there's a rub- if there are robbers down the road... Robbers down the road there, and we're all going there. You know there are robbers there. Then you meet somebody who is also going. And you say, ah, should I tell him? I shouldn't tell him. I don't want to hurt his feelings. If God who has seen all eternity is saying that I am putting, I am putting cues in this world for you to know what's going to happen in the world to come, you will likewise perish. Suffering in this world becomes a picture of so what suffering is, that suffering exists beyond this world. It's not saying that because you are suffering that you are going to go to hell. That's not what he's saying. He's saying look at the suffering in this world. It is a window into the world that is to come. But somewhere else, so that's suffering as warning, but somewhere else, Suffering is also seen as something in the world to come. In Romans 8, Paul says this, Romans eight eighteen. 18, I consider that present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In the first instance, suffering was used as a picture of suffering to come. In this other instance, suffering in this world is contrasted with glory in the world to come. Two ways to live, two destinies. Paul is saying that the suffering in this world, the aching in this world is something that should inspire longing for the world to come in us. I don't know if any of you have lost anyone to cancer before. I have, one or two of them. I'm talking about when the cancer has now reached it, for they're doing chemo, it's not working. What often happens, you see that person, the person is becoming gaunt. The person that probably was, you know, well, I know someone who was quite plump, the last time I saw this man, he was, I mean, it was, a terrible, it was a terrible sight. And yet the man stayed for a couple of weeks. Let me tell you what I was thinking in my mind, what I know his wife was thinking in his mind. And I know everybody that cared and loved for that man was thinking in their mind. Do you know what they were thinking? Father, let him go. Because we know that that man was in Christ. So we are saying, Father, let him not Let him not continue to experience this pain. Let him come and be with you where we know there is no more suffering. You see, quite often as believers, we want to take that away from people and still lock them in this world. I know God will do it. I know God will do it. Rather than trying to prepare the person for the place where all of this will be no more. Consider that the suffering of this present world cannot be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. I've used this analogy for these two things. I said it's like you enter into a hospital, and you hear pains coming from two different directions. One pain is the pain of a cancer patient stage four. What's going to happen after? That pain is an indication of something that eventually will happen. He's going towards his maker. The other pain is the pain of a woman in labor eventually that pain will turn into joy and that's what we have so suffering causes us to th- take the eternal long-term view if we are longing we long for patience so on the one hand it warns us on the other hand it causes us to long uh, to long for him second it causes us to accept our limitations how many of us have th- Consider, the book, I've read the book of Job beyond the first two chapters and the last chapter, right? Because after chapter three, chapter four, all of a sudden. Now, the book of Job is the most sophisticated and comprehensive treatment of suffering that you have in the ancient world and even in the modern world. It is marvelous because it is not simplistic. It goes through all the different contours of the human experience. It's just a masterful book. Please read it. But let me give a small introduction. Job can tell us a lot about suffering because this man went through enormous amount of suffering. Just enormous, for one person. This man was the richest man in his whole region at the time, the greatest man in his region at the time. But in one day, this man suffered financial hardship. He lost his business and his assets, Job 1, 14 to 17 And that same day, he suffered natural disaster, which then led to family bereavement. He lost all his children, Job 1, 18 to 19 after that, he, he suffered the collapse of his marriage. He stopped being a believer. He, didn't, he went to go the other way, Job 2, 9 to 10. And to top all of that, he was now inflicted with disease. Lost his business, lost his children, lost his marriage, suffered natural disaster, and now he's with disease. Then he has these three friends that come in, Because friends always come in our time of suffering, right? Where would we be without friends? And these friends, as I said before, they come, and they spend the first seven days doing exactly what they should have continued to do. You know what they did? They shut up. Can I say that sometimes, please? You go to the house of mourning, and you want to comfort people. Do you know what they don't need? They don't need to hear your voice. They need to see your presence. And these people did that for seven days, and everything was good until they opened up their mouth. And here is how they basically were thinking about this: Good job, you believer. We are believers. You know God is good. We know God is good. We know that God rewards uh, good for for uh, for the things that um, uh, He rewards good for. Good, fine. But we also know that God rewards evil for evil. Fine. Job, you are suffering, but God is good. Therefore, you are not as good as we thought. Do you have anything to confess? And this was the dialogue that continued for 30 plus chapters. Job would come and Job's own was, I know God is good, but I know I didn't do this thing. I I wish I would have a lawyer that can come before God and actually defend me because I I need to understand what's going on. This, This isn't fair. I am an innocent sufferer. And they go back and forth, back and forth, until God himself finally speaks. Now, you know, behind the scenes was a wager between God and the devil. I'm about to go into all of that now. But Job and his friends couldn't see this. Now, God now actually speaks, and we all know what God is going to do, right? God is eventually going to reveal to Job the meaning of his suffering. How many times, I don't know, some of you that are mature here, somebody's going suffering, and they come and they ask you this question, is this persecution or is this the devil so that I know how to resist it? What do you think is the answer here? Is it the devil, or is it God trying to teach me something? Well, actually, it was between God and the devil. It's not that simplistic. So guess what? God is actually going to reveal to Job the cause of his suffering. Does he? 70-something statements later, questions later, God is trying to tell Job, you are a creature. I am God. Where were you when I made the snowflake? Can you make a snowflake? Where were you when I put the starry host, Orion, into the skies? Where were you when the sons of God shouted aloud for joy? Where were you, Job? You are questioning me. Suppose I try to explain to you the reason for this suffering. Do you think your puny mind will be able to actually understand it? In the middle of it, Job said, ah, "I have misspoke. I didn't. I shouldn't have said anything." Okay, I now fully understand. God said, "Get up. Guard yourself like a man. I have not finished talking." and further asking more and more questions. Now, this isn't true. What am I trying to say? Sometimes our problem as human beings is certitude. We believe if only someone is able to explain everything to me, I will get it. And the Bible says that the secret things belong to God. Those that are revealed, he has given unto the children of men. You cannot always understand why this suffering comes in. So quit always trying to explain. Job eventually found out what was he meant to do? He was meant to trust the God who sees all things. Sometimes all God is asking for in the fire of suffering is our trust. It's not to question his character. For those who believe God must believe that he exists, and guess what? His character cannot be impugned. He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. It may not be in the timing that you think, but we cannot, with suffering, impugn God's character. If anything, the complexity of these things that are too wonderful for us should move us into worship. Accept your limitation. In that regard, suffering humbles us. And then the third thing, and this one is slightly a little bit more complex, but suffering is there to teach us virtue. Now, again, sometimes... In a bid to be very, very helpful, well-intentioned, we go to meet someone and say, well, you know, this child that you have that is not like every other child, I can explain. God was not in this. God could not have been involved in this. God does not teach us anything through suffering except that we have to fight, take our territories, and overcome. Somebody has a terrible accident, Absolutely dreadful accident. The first thing we say that it's the devil. God is not meant; is not there. Now I understand that, but those answers are misguided at best and cruel at worst. Why? Why is it misguided? In the short term, telling somebody that God was not the God that they serve could not. He wasn't. It wasn't. He wasn't there to this whole issue of uh, what you are going through. He wasn't involved at all. Telling that person that, in the short term, can make them feel good. In the long term, do you know what you are telling them? You are telling them that the God that they serve, though he is the creator of the universe, he is not watching over every single thing in the universe. How then can they have a guarantee that something like that will not happen to them again? God is not involved in this. In fact, you are almost telling them that, The one who neither sleeps nor slumber actually was taking a very quick nap on this particular issue. Ah, but don't worry, you know God, it won't happen again. Really? How do I know? So in the long run, telling somebody that God knew not about their suffering, and because if he knew something about it, because he's good, he would have done something about it. So maybe he's very good, but maybe he's not omniscient. That brings no comfort to anyone. And sometimes, this will almost contradict everything I've said, we tell people, it has absolutely nothing to do with sin. Now this same Jesus in John 5, 14, after he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, saw the man again later and said, stop sinning or else something worse will come upon you. So I'm not saying that even sins in particular has nothing to do with it. Here are two truths that the Bible speak, uh, says unequivocally, and none of us here is going to be able to match two together. One, God is utterly sovereign over all affairs in this world, but this sovereignty does not act in any way as to remove human responsibility. God is utterly sovereign; is utterly sov- sovereign, but it doesn't act in a way to remove human responsibility. Two. Humans are morally free creatures. That is, we make choices, and those choices have significant consequences. But this never acts in a way to make God contingent or make God reactive. In other words, God didn't know that this was going to happen. But now that God has known, God has a plan to get you out of it. No, God always knew everything. Now, how do I hold the fact that God was involved in everything? God is... is, um, He's the, he's the creator and the sustainer and, the, and, and he's sovereign over all things. How do I hold that and at the same time say if God did that, then actually if I've created this, then God shouldn't blame me. After, after all, you know, who can resist his will? As someone said in Romans chapter 9, to which Paul said, be very quiet. God holds us to account even though God himself is sovereign. Now, what does this then mean in relation to this? Now, one example I can give is the issue of, there are others in Isaiah 10, Acts chapter four, but the one we all know, Joseph and his brothers. Joseph and his brothers, Joseph we know, was sold into captivity in uh, slavery in Egypt. Eventually he rises, his brothers don't know, he becomes number two in the kingdom, and then his brothers now move with his father, they're all reconciled, but now the father dies, and they think that he's going to get one back at them. And eventually, jo- uh, Joseph confronts them and said, you know what? You meant this thing for, but God meant it for? Now, notice that statement. God did not commit evil. And God, by calling it evil, was not saying that, because this thing was working out the plan of God, these guys are not morally culpable. He never said that. Neither do this say, that God didn't know what was happening, that it was after these people had actually committed the evil, then God now sat down with the Caribbeans and, and said, how can we work out the best out of this? And in that regard, here is what suffering tells us. That we are neither, 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 neither totally guilty in every situation, but neither are we totally guiltless as well. Because God is sovereign and he is mysteriously working out good from evil, he is able to take the suffering lives even when we are at blame, and then he's able to use it to teach us something. So, for instance, in Hebrews 12, verse 7 to 8, it says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons, daughters at all. True sons or daughters at all. In other words, did we commit evil? Yes. And sometimes, or is there any kind of sin in our lives that is leading us to destruction? Yes. And so God brings hardship in our lives to teach us something. Or James 1, 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. When you face trials of many kinds, consider it what? Consider it what? Pure joy. Pure joy. When we face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. In other words, God says, I use suffering actually to mature you. And some of the entrepreneurs around us here would know, know a little bit about this. Most times, people don't actually learn or succeed without hardship. I heard Denzel Washington recently say, ease is a greater hindrance to progress than hardship. There's no meaning to this hardship, but why don't you wait one year after? Or why don't you wait two years after? Quite often we say, ah. And there are many of us that will say, they say, this particular suffering that is in my life, right now I will not change it for anything. Because it was because of this suffering I learned this and that. Sometimes it is our gifts that we have. Paul said, because of the abundance of revelations that I have, he had a particular thorn of flesh that was given to him, which in intercessory prayer he sought the Lord three times. Three times to remove it, and God did not remove it. The same Paul that actually delivered people out of a lot of their bondages. Said, and therefore, Paul then said, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that, the, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now, please don't get me wrong. There's one more I should throw in. Sorry, again, I've already exceeded time. But this last one I throw throwing uh, that we learned. Paul says that, blessed is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our suffering so that we are able to comfort those who also have suffered the same way that we have. Sometimes God allows suffering to come in our way because of that particular person. Some of us walk through terrible marriages and we are there at the end because of that other younger sister that is walking through a terrible marriage and you are there to tell her, it seems like your world is falling apart now. Hold on to God. I can tell you that on authority because that's what happened to me 10 years ago. And sometimes they will not listen to somebody else who has not gone through that because they say, you do not understand what I'm going through. Now, don't get me wrong. You see, I've mapped out different things. If you take some of these things in isolation, it can be cruel. It can be cruel. But we have to be much more nuanced because all these different things are the things that are working towards a better understanding of suffering and therefore a better understanding of how we respond to suffering. Final point, because there is more. Hold on. The final point, the defeat of suffering. Now, we go back to our text. Yeah, you thought I'd forgotten about it. But in our text, Jesus turns our attention to something else. Notice in verse 3, he said, "Neither Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but what? But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So there's one more reason yet. Why is this person suffering? So that the works of God may be displayed in him. Now, in this immediate context, Jesus, the works of God is what? As we see in verse 6 to 7, is that Jesus heals this man. Jesus does what? Heals this man. In 2 Corinthians 3, in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, uh, uh, 3 to 9, you know the same place where Paul says that part of God's response to suffering is for us to comfort people through their suffering. Paul later in that verse says, that he delivered us from such a great peril, and he'll do what? He will yet deliver us. So sometimes suffering comes into our life for the precise reason for God to deliver us out of the suffering so that we can praise him. Hear me very closely. God heals today. God ministers to people who have been healed. Somebody goes, lays their hands on them, pray, and actually they are delivered. I'm not saying this because I saw it on TV. I'm saying this because I've seen it done before. Still, last day, I was praying with somebody who actually came here once or twice, and her mother just developed cancer after she, um, she, whatever. And she couldn't do anything. She left work, all of those things. And I knew when I was praying with her, yes, I could say the will of God, you know, da-da-da-da-da. I didn't feel to do that. All I prayed with her for about two weeks was, God healed this woman. God healed this woman. God healed this woman. Yes, she was seeing a doctor. Guess what happened after? Hey, you guessed right. God healed the woman. You see, what was happening here is that Jesus, the one who is bringing the kingdom of God, was manifesting the power of the kingdom of God. Now, that's not the only thing, but it's not less than that. He's saying in the world that is to come, the kingdom I'm bringing, there is no sick person there. Read Revelation 21. And he's saying because this kingdom has done with me, I bring the power of that kingdom. And so he healed many people. Now, if the kingdom had dawned when Jesus had come, before he had risen and gone back to the cross, uh, through the cross, uh, uh, resurrection and to, to, to heaven, if the kingdom had dawned and Jesus was doing these miracles, how about now that the kingdom has finally been inaugurated? Is the spirit not still working in powerful ways? Of course he is. This is why you can read in James chapter 5, Is any sick among you, let them call the elders to what? Pray. Because the prayer of faith will heal the sick. And so it's not every time that somebody is suffering, and all we just say is that sorry, don't worry to be well. God is teaching you something through this. No, let us pray and pray that God will take this out. Knowing also well that also God doesn't always take it away. You see, that's the problem. Sometimes we have these polarities. We either want to say that God is going to comfort us, and so this is what we do and we don't, want to, you know, we don't want people to feel bad about the fact that we prayed and it didn't work out, or we say, no, 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 this situation is always to reveal the glory and the works of God. Let us pray continually, pray for the person to be healed. Jesus says it's neither of both. It's both and. In fact, I have to say, for those of us who say, yes, God does heal today, yes, but the Bible speaks more about suffering than about the healing. And precisely in this case, as I said, the primary, the, the primary reason was not just to heal this man but it's not less than that. How do I know that he doesn't heal all the time? Because Jesus was using this occasion not so much to say that I am always healing everywhere. Look, even read Mark chapter 6. Jesus did not, was not able to heal some people, not because he wasn't God, but because of their unbelief. I'm not saying that means that every time we believe, that's when he heals. No, it's, let's not be too simplistic. But he uses this as an occasion, a greater occasion to reveal something. What we read in the whole book of John, that he's revealing his identity. He reveals something about himself, verse 5. I am the light of the world. What does he mean by that? This man who is blind becomes an analogous representative of the world's condition. If he is the light of the world, it means that the world itself doesn't have light. The world is a dark place spiritually, and Jesus is the light that brings uh, Jesus is the person that brings light into the world because in him he is the light and in him was the light of, uh, he is the life, and in him was the life of all men. Now I just spoke about the fact that we like, peop- we like it when we are going through suffering that somebody else has gone through the same thing. In every other religion you have a God who whether the people admit it or not, is aloof from their suffering. It's not that he doesn't know. He sees that God sees or their gods see, but they're always trying to provide a means for you to get out of it or you just accept it. But Christianity teaches us something different. It says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among men. In other words, we have a God who said... I know you suffer. I care that you suffer, and I'm going to tell you how I care precisely because I'm going to come and share your suffering. In what we call the incarnation, we have a God who is identified with us in our suffering so that you cannot one day get up and pray and say, God, like I know someone that wrote this, God, you can't really understand what I'm going through because you know what? You are God, and God says, Jesus. Jesus. Hebrews 2.18 says this, he, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. I have someone this week who has been going through something. I said, these things that you've been going through, this past hurts, the unavailability of your dad and all this, how often do you take it to Jesus? I said, how do you work out, cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. How do you know he cares for you? Because he became like one of us. Not only does he identify with us, though, in our suffering, he has done something about it. Now, like most of us, I struggle. the thing that I struggle with the most as being a Christian, this is the thing. If anything was going to make me stop being a Christian, and it wouldn't, but if there was anything that was going to make me stop being a Christian, it is the reality of innocent suffering. I was talking with Bimbo just um, recently. She's about going to do some planning for, you know, helping with the people in the IDP, IDP camps. And just the thought of, you see, a one-year-old or a two-year-old who has not known any other thing but actually running away from people, living in camps. And some of them, as they are born, maybe they have cataracts in their eye. Some of them are born, they are now malnourished, kwashiorkor, and all those things. You look at that and you want to say, Why God? Now, what is behind this why God? When we look at little children that are suffering, the reason why we have a visceral reaction towards that suffering is because we call them innocent. They've not had time to do any evil. So this thing behind our mind that maps evil to suffering, we say that couldn't have worked with these children because these children have not had time to do any evil. And so it... Even though we look at a 65-year-old man suffering, it doesn't really feel the same way as when we see a little child suffering. And so the question becomes, why God? Why God because of innocent suffering? But notice something about the little child. I say he's not had time to do evil, but neither has he had any time to do good. You see, what they put before this man is, Uh, Before Jesus, this man was blind from birth. Therefore, who sinned? He was blind from birth. Who sinned? And this whole issue of innocent suffering, we all have it as a dilemma, isn't it? Well, John poses a bigger dilemma for you later in the book. And that dilemma is this. Bigger than babies suffering. What is it? You see, babies have not done any good, though they've not done any evil either. And that gets to us. But we can then ask the same question these people asked. This man on a cross, who sinned that he's suffering this way? Because unlike babies who've not done any good, this man did nothing but good. He did no evil, but he also did, he did only ever did good. And yet, he is suffering the most brutal and shameful of deaths that humankind has ever known. It was both eternal and both shameful. And the question is, why is he suffering? Who sinned? And the answer is, us. Us. You see, Jesus is truly and ultimately the only innocent sufferer. But he, is so, he suffered on the cross because we had turned away from God. Ultimately, whatever suffering we go in this life, but hear me carefully based on everything I have said. We are not totally guiltless. I didn't say we are fully guilty as well. We are always fully guilty. But we are not totally guiltless because of the fall, because none of us can sit down here and say that we've never done anything. He can say he had never done anything. He only pleased the Father. But he went there so that the consequences, the ultimate eternal consequences of our sin does not fall upon us in the eternal condemnation, but that he took that eternal condemnation for all of us who will believe in him. In our darkness, he says, I am the light of the world. To run to him is to say, I need your light. Would you listen to what suffering is ultimately trying to point you to? Yes, it's all the things I've said, but ultimately suffering is pointing us to Jesus. You see, in his resurrection, because eventually he did not stay in the grave... He guarantees us that this suffering will not have the final world. He defeats death at its own game, and he rises up. And now he's entered into that future, that future that we said we long for. How do we know that that future is secure? Because Jesus has already entered it. question is this. Would you be like the blind man that says, yes, I need you, or the Pharisees later in 39 to 41 who rejected it? And as for us that are Christians here, The Bible, yes, says many things about living the victorious life, but part of the victorious life is that we identify with Christ. Christ identified with us. And so now we identify with him until that day comes. We're going to break bread now. And I'm sorry for taking so much time on this. But I want us to break bread. And I want you to think before we come, To ponder on Christ being the light of the world and whether he's the light in your life. Remember, suffering is pointing to him. And even when we break this bread, we're actually depicting the suffering of Christ by breaking and showing the way his body was on the cross. Now, there may be some of us here who have not come to faith and union with Christ. And you are pondering this decision in your heart. Can I ask that whilst you ponder this decision, why don't you watch us who are believers in Christ and speak to one of us at the end of this service and we'll prepare you for the next time we want to have communion.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, Love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.